Isaiah 53, who has believed what they heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of the people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Good morning. Hope you are well this morning. Happy Easter. Uh, my name is Matt, and uh, I am one of the pastors here at Renewal. It is a joy uh, to have you with us. If you have a copy of the scriptures, if you would go ahead and open them uh, to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 15, and as soon as I learn how to operate a stand, we will get rolling. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 will serve as our text this morning. Uh, we're going to begin in verse 50. do want to greet you. It is a good day for us to gather. Thanks for those of you that served uh, breakfast this morning and uh, provided uh, welcome if you are new. Uh, if you are here uh, at the invite of a friend, welcome to Renewal. It is a joy for us to receive you as our guest this morning. We hope you find a place that you can call home. We have been, uh, for the last 40 weeks or so, journeying through the book of 1 Corinthians. And as we outlined the text, we uh, saw fit to land 1 Corinthians 15 uh, on Easter Sunday, because this is a text that really centers around the resurrection of Jesus, and much that we have to celebrate this day. It's hard for us to uh, even conceive and recount the difference of emotions for us as we gather 
on this Resurrection Sunday compared to those that gathered on the first Easter Sunday. Uh, much like watching a movie next to someone that you've already seen and they are seeing for the first time. Uh, you know the ending, you know what's going to take place. And so at places where they are frightened or horrified or stunned, you can celebrate, you can have joy because you already know the outcome. And that would be the case for many of us that gather this morning. Of course, there are some of you that are here just at the invite of a friend. Uh, Christianity is not on your radar. This is just the right thing to do in the South is to go to church on Easter Sunday and you're here. Some of you come uh, skeptical to the Christian faith and uh, particularly something as miraculous as the resurrection really jars many of our understandings of what it means to uh, be an American, what it means to live here at this place, something like the resurrection is quite jarring for you, and you're here kind of investigating, really thinking this through. For the others of you, uh, I would suggest many of you, this morning is a cause for great celebration, a cause for great joy. You have placed your faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and as a result, a day like today really serves as the climax or the pinnacle of our faith. In fact, as Paul showed us earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, you take this out and all that we're doing falls apart. It is the linchpin to the Christian faith without which all we're doing is religious performance. And so for many of us, this day we awaken with this sense of joy, heightened emotion, really focus on Christ. It's quite the contrast to the emotions that would have dominated Jesus' followers on the first resurrection morning. Uh, they did not show up at Jesus' tomb with party poppers and streamers waiting for him to come out. Uh, this day, in fact, was met with great gloom and sadness. This was not the way it was supposed to turn out for Jesus' followers and for Jesus himself. And in the face of that contrast, we read these words from Matthew 28. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen. As he said, come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. In those two statements, everything changes. He is not here, he is risen. And the angel makes the point that he's already told the, these followers that this is what they should expect, and yet we can tell from the scene that this was not their expectation at all. They're stunned, and they marvel, and they run and scatter to tell. And from that point forward, these two statements serve as a bend in the river of all of human history. He is not here. He is risen. Everything changes on those words. The resurrection of Jesus the Messiah changed the shape and the contour of all the world and of many of our lives. 
leading Carl F.H. Henry to write that the early Christians did not say, look what the world is coming to, but look what has come into the world. This contrast of the Messiah coming into the world and resurrecting again has the power to change everything in your life and in mine. What has come into the world this day was the resurrected king of the universe. Kierkegaard says that this, the central question of humanity is whether or not Jesus rose on Easter morning. How we understand that question determines how we will answer every other question. It proves what God is doing, that God is doing what he said he was going to do, and that Jesus is who he says he was, the very Son of God. Paul makes this point in the opening to the book of Romans where he writes, Jesus, through the power of the Spirit of holiness, was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus, our Lord. Resurrection Sunday shouts Jesus' credentials to us. He is who he says he was, the Son of God. And over the course of the chapter that we have been considering in 1 Corinthians 15, six different groups meet the resurrected Jesus, validating that this was not a hoax, but the real Jesus really dead and really resurrected. And this reality becomes the core message of the gospel from this point forward as Jesus' followers spread out around the known world proclaiming the resurrected Christ. In Peter's first Easter sermon, hard to improve on Peter's first Easter sermon, he recounts this. Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Lord and Christ, the resurrection stamps this claim into the history books for all ages. What looked like defeat now resulted in victory proclaiming the divinity of Christ. Victory, this serves as Paul's hinge word in the verses that we'll consider, the eight verses, that this day is a day of victory. Secular uh, business practices uh, take a bent off of this idea. Nike itself, the Nike swoosh, probably one of the most famous emblems of all business practices, designed in 1971, by Carolyn Davidson, bought by Nike for 35 bucks in 1971. Named after the Greek goddess for victory, Nike, the Greek word victory, the swoosh capturing what all people desire their lives to become, this image of downward trajectory, but that ultimately catapults into victory. This picture was the picture of all of redemptive history, of sin entering the world, Christ incarnate, the Son of God, going down to the very depths of death itself, and then emerging victorious back to life. The Nike swoosh is a picture of this day for us, and it's a picture of all of human history, the incarnation, the death, burial, resurrection, and then ascension of Christ. And yet... We have to ask the question, why does this reality matter? Is this simply a fact that we recount, or is it something that is much more personal? Do we simply celebrate this day that our God was dead, 
buried, resurrected, and ascended? Or does that somehow intersect our lives in some ways that are deep, meaningful, and profound? Paul answers that question for us in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 58. That's our text for this morning. He's been asking the question throughout this chapter as to whether all he has said leading up to 1 Corinthians 15 really has any significance at all. He's been recounting for this church that is really, really messed up. All of these ways that their life and their practices need to change. And this is different, as we've seen, than others of Paul's letters where he starts with the life, death, burial, resurrection of Christ. And then he says, as a result of what Christ has done, now you need to do this. 1 Corinthians starts with all of these things that you need to do, and then it ends with this crescendo of here is the gospel. Paul begins this 1 Corinthians 15 with, I want to recount to you what is of first importance, the gospel of Christ. He points very quickly in verse 4 to his death and burial, and then really from that point forward, it's just a slingshot through the resurrection. He pictures the resurrection of Christ as the pinnacle of all of what God is doing in this world. And therefore, he answers the question, because of the resurrection, all of the things that he's been writing are not in vain. In fact, it is not only necessary, but it is possible for the people to live the way Paul has been encouraging them because of the resurrection of Christ. In fact, not only is it possible, but one day God will transform all of his people from all nations to live with him forever in perfect worship and harmony. This is the picture that he's recounting in the verses that lead up to verse 50, where he says, your body, much like that of Christ, will be transformed, death burial, and resurrection. Christ is the first fruits of what will happen to all of us who are in Christ. And he begins in verse 50 with this crescendo. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now this is Common Paul language. It's the same language that's used in Ephesians 5 about the mystery of Christ's love for the church. When Paul speaks of mystery, what he's speaking of is not something that's hidden. They're like he's got secret insight into and nobody else knows. But rather, something that was hidden, that now that Christ has died, is raised, and has ascended, all can see and know. So this mystery that's been hidden for ages, now we can all get a clear picture of what God is doing. And what is this mystery that he declares? We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. 
When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Just pray and go home after that, right? This is the ultimate trash-talking text in all of Scripture. Paul literally taunts several realities in these eight verses, asking these rhetorical questions that amount to na-na-na-boo-boo in the face of these realities. He holds them up and just mocks them saying that the resurrection of Jesus proclaims a message of victory. And this victory is a message that we need to hear deeply this morning, whether you are hearing it for the 50th time or the first. The resurrection of Jesus that we celebrate this day proclaims victory over three of the greatest foes of all of humanity. Paul recounts these for us. And builds a case, really, from bottom up. The first victory that Paul says this day proclaims, taunts victory over, is that of death itself. Verse 54, these great rhetorical questions. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The first Victory that the resurrection proclaims is a victory over death. Death has been defeated. Death has been defeated. Jesus is the first to and only to permanently beat death. And you say, well, what about those other dudes that like died and resurrected in the scriptures, or those guys that, I mean, every Christian bookstore, like, it's like number three on the bestseller list, okay? I journeyed beyond and saw the afterlife, and this deal happened, and now I'm back to write a book uh, and make a lot of money to tell you about what happened there. What about them, okay? The reality is them, scriptures, best-selling authors of today, no one escapes death forever, This is Paul's point. He says that the corrupted, the corruptible, they can't inherit the incorruptible. Unless something happens, there's no way for us, mortal, fallen, sinful, to inherit the incorruptible. Everyone dies and nobody likes it. This fact is 100% certain, and yet everyone, myself included, is stunned and shocked when it happens. Even someone in late old age that's lived a very joyful life, living into their later stages, and death meets, and we're all amazed. How does this happen? And the reality is we all know, looming in the backdrop of all of our lives, is the certainty of death. And even though it's certain, it always seems like an unwelcomed intruder into our world. In spite of the host of modern advances, no one has seemed to sedate the shocking reality of death. 
Sure, we invent different language. They passed away. They moved on. They left us. But the reality remains. Death stinks. And really, even in our prime, let's be honest, we're not all that impressive. I mean, even in our best days, <laughs> I was in Starbucks studying this week, and uh, I posted this on social media. Uh, someone came uh, up to me, a random stranger, and said, uh, Matt, uh, didn't know my name, but said, I think I know you from somewhere. Did not like 10 years ago, didn't you work at summer camp and lip sync to a Britney Spears song in front of uh, campers? Um, to which my response is, hang my head in shame, knowing the correct answer to that question is yes. Um, <laughs> if you know me now, you know how much can change in a decade. Um, where did your hair go, right? Like, everything, even now, is moving towards death and decay. Don't believe me? Give your wife some flowers. And watch how death conquers everything. We don't like to think of this reality, even in the face of things like cancer. Watch the language that we use. Someone beat cancer. Really? We always want to think that there's something that we can do to escape death, but the reality is, even in our best days, all we do is prolong it. All we do is prolong the inevitable. Even Lazarus died again. Even Lazarus died again. Jesus, for us, is the only one that can confront the permanent and unalterable reality of death. He defeated death. Paul cites two Old Testament texts that point to the Messiah in this scripture, Isaiah 25 and Hosea 13, to show that God has literally swallowed up death as he promised he would. And how did Jesus beat death on this weekend? He beat it, not by going around it, but by going through it. He confronted death, not by running from it, but by running into it. He defeated death by absorbing it fully for us. Death's victory has been overcome by Christ's victory, and Paul says, therefore, death's deadly sting has been removed. In fact, the stinger itself has been plucked through Christ's resurrection. Paul says that Jesus' def death defeats death for the Christian and therefore guarantees them a future resurrection. Now we're perishable and mortal, but because Christ has defeated death, we can be resurrected imperishable and immortal. On that glorious day when many of our Jesus Storybook Bibles, tattered Jesus Storybook Bibles that we read to our kids, recounts when everything sad will come untrue. We can have hope of that day because Christ fully absorbed death for us on this day. He beat it. This victory over death not only defeats this victory of the resurrection, not only defeats death, but it defeats one other heinous foe to the human life. And that is sin itself. 
Notice in verse 56 what Paul does. He says this sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So he's going to do two more layers for us that this victory, Christ's victory, this day proclaims. The first of those is a, death, uh, is a victory over death. The second of those is a victory over sin. That in defeating death, the resurrection proclaims a victory over sin. Why? Because at the root of death is sin. Death is not simply the mere outworking of biological processes by which your body decays, but rather it is a very spiritual reality, the direct result of the curse in Genesis 3. That since human sin entered, the result is death. Unalterable, unavoidable death. Since the garden, that has been the curse for sin. The verse that many of us memorized when we were little kids, that Romans 6.23 teaches us that death is what sin deserves. In fact, James is going to argue that the natural progression of sin, then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Sin is the deadly poison that leads to death. Death is the outworking of our sin, not simply the outworking of natural human processes and therefore for Christ to defeat death proclaims a defeat of sin. He fully paid the price that our sin deserves and therefore his defeat of sin guarantees the forgiveness of sins for his children. Paul writes in Romans 4:25 that he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised, for, raised to life for our justification. This is very legal terminology that in the resurrection, those of us in Christ have been declared forgiven. That our sin was fully placed on Christ, and in his resurrection, he proclaims victory over sin. The resurrection is God's signing off on our salvation. It is proof that the payment for sin has gone through. Think of today as a receipt that you get after a payment on a card. It is proof that the payment was made and accepted. Why death? Why resurrection? Presumably God could have just yelled from heaven, I got this. I got him. He died. Why resurrection? The resurrection is the consequence and demonstration of our salvation because death is the consequence and demonstration for our sin. He was resurrected to prove once and for all that sin has been defeated. And for those who have placed their faith in the finished work of Christ, their sin this day is proclaimed done, past present, and future. This is a cause for joy. That our sin is permanently and unalterably declared victory over. It has been defeated. Then he's going to argue one more point. The victory over death, the victory over sin, and then the victory over the law. 
Verse 56 again, the sting of death is sin, but the power of sin and the power of sin is the law. So you see him connecting these dots. Death is defeated, sin is defeated, and the law is defeated. You may say, what's the connection between the law and sin and death? The law have to do with death and sin. Simply, throughout the scriptures, we see that the law is an external means of controlling behavior so as to mitigate against the consequences of sin and death. So we have these external tethers on life that serve as pulleys, puppet pulleys for us to try to sedate, abate the reality of sin and death. And he says, therefore, since Christ has paid the penalty for death, he's beaten that, he's also beaten sin, he's also today beaten the law. We celebrate a reality that we don't gather tethered to moral hooks so as to justify our standing before God. Many of us, particularly in the South, this is a reality that dies a slow death. That we have been taught over and over again that I merit favor with God based on how good I am. I clean up, I do the right things, I check the right boxes. Today, Easter Sunday proclaims a victory over that. You can be free from the tethers of religion and free to worship in gratitude. Paul argues this in Romans 10, that Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law. He is what the law is to point to. We celebrate this morning that we can point to Christ and not to these external means of trying to squelch the reality of sin and death in our life. And I would argue this is true whether you're here this morning and you're a believer or not. The two dreaded enemies of death and sin are something that every person has to face. And interestingly, what you'll find, regardless of who you interact with, is that they are going to put something in their life to try to put bumpers on those two realities. They may not define sin as a fence before a holy God, but they will define certain things as inbounds and certain things as out of bounds. And at the end of the day, all of us know we consistently go out of bounds. Believer or non-believer alike in this room, the reality is we have to confront the reality of death. Death stares us in the face, and with our flattened world and social media, it meets us every single day. The reality of another diagnosis, another tragic death, another teenage car accident, we have to figure out some way to squelch that. Either don't think about it or try to be good so at the end the scales will tip in my favor, and oftentimes people invent very comical ways to stop these two realities, to somehow sedate their consciences. So they don't have to confront the reality of how bad they are and how short this life is. And the same is true for you. You must deal with those realities. And Paul argues in this text that the resurrection gives us a wonderful hope in the face of those. 
We don't have to base our moral standing on being good, social causes, caring for neglected animals, going and drilling wells. We don't have to do any of that. We can do all of that out of gratitude, but none of that to merit favor with God. It says, that has been beaten. Therefore, in verse 58, Paul writes, My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Classic Paul language here. He has just recounted this beautiful picture of the resurrection, and then he says, therefore, here's how you are to live. He does the same thing in Colossians 1.23 with almost the same language at the beginning of that letter. If indeed you continue in the faith, steadfast or stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. He argues, stay fixed, stay steadfast, don't, in the Corinthian context, cower to people that are undermining the reality of the resurrection. Stay fixed on this, knowing that in light of this, your lives and your labor is not in vain. The resurrection turns the reality for the Christian from law-abiding to gospel-believing, from self-righteous moral attainment to a deep-seating and abiding trust in the work of Christ on our behalf. We can stay fixed, knowing that our lives are not in vain. This is Paul's ending, his bookmark on the argument that he started in verse 1, when he asked, is all of this in vain? He answers, no, it's not in vain, because the resurrection catapults our lives with significance and meaning, because the great enemies of all of humanity are declared defeated today. So, for you and for me, today, Resurrection Sunday, we proclaim that in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, the three big enemies of all of humanity are defeated. In fact, Paul uses this imagery of their sting being removed. Imagine with me, if you can, a wasp that's had his sting removed. What do you do to that thing? You just swat it away. I mean, it's totally insignificant, right? So he holds up these things that have great significance, right? Death, sin, morality, religion, all this kind of thing. He holds these up and says, in light of this day, in light of the reality of the resurrection, we've plucked the sting out of those. We can swat them away. Victory has been declared. Think with me, a picture might help. Let's consider uh, the story of David and Goliath. I know it's a weird place to go on Easter Sunday, but track with me for a second. Very familiar story for many of you. The story of little shepherd boy, David. Nation of Israel encamped kind of in this valley between the Philistines on the one hand and the Israelites on the other. We have Jesse, kind of old and elderly, with eight kids, three of which these older brothers are out on the battle lines. And David... Uh, is kind of the runner between Jesse and the boys that are out on the front lines, taking them food and supplies while he cares for the sheep. 
I mean, he's just the little shepherd boy, the run of the litter. And every day, it's, scriptures tell us in 1 Samuel 17 that uh, every day the Philistine army would mock. I mean, it's kind of the counter of the text we read this morning. They would mock the people of God, particularly this one massive dude, Goliath, who would step to the front lines and say, who wants some of me? Come take me. Beat me, you win. If not, we win. And every day for 40 days, this mortal enemy of the nation, the people of God, would step up to the victory lines and say, come on, get some. And every day, the boys would cower in fear. The scriptures tell us in 1 Samuel 17 that these three older brothers were I mean, just hunkered down in fear of this enemy. And on one day, at the end of the 40 days, David comes and brings supplies to the front lines from his father, to the older brothers. And he hears, he just happens to show up when Goliath's toeing the line and yelling at the boys, come get some. And David's like, why is nobody fighting? The people of God, and here's this great enemy, why is nobody stepping up? And he, his older brothers are cowering in the corner. I'm a tornado drill position is the picture I have in my head, you know, just fetal position. I don't know what to do with this big dude. Can't handle him. David says, I'll take him. I'll take him. He steps to the line. You guys know the story. And this miraculous provision, this enemy, this foe that seems bigger than life, David steps up and defeats cuts off his head. I mean, it's a great scene. Just carries the head around. Now, here's the question. Here's the question. Who are you in that story? Who are you in the story of David and Goliath? Who are you this morning? I mean, none, I don't think many of us are going to say I'm Goliath, right? I'm just a mortal enemy standing on the lines just throwing jabs, okay? Hate Christianity, I'm assuming you wouldn't be here this morning if that were the reality. Most of us have heard way too many sermons that we're David. That we're David and that we have really big foes. Sin, disease, and problems, and kids that won't obey, and a wife that we struggle to love, and bad sin struggles, and the end of the day, the message is you can take them. Step to the line this morning, take your little slingshot and your pebbles and chunk it at Goliath. You've got what it takes to beat sin. That could not be further from the message of Easter Sunday could not be further from the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel and the message of Easter Sunday is not that you are David, but that you are the elder brothers in the fetal position under the table, staring at a reality that you cannot beat. Death, sin, disease, all of those realities, your small pebbles are hopeless. What you need is a substitute to toe the line for you, to look weak and small and insignificant and take down a giant. To defeat it, 
to cut off its head and to proclaim victory over it all the while while you lay in the corner. And to come and say, look at the head, we've beaten it. We've got it. Victory is proclaimed. You can come out of hiding. You can get out of the fetal position. You don't have to throw little pebbles anymore because death and sin are defeated. That's what this day proclaims. Jesus stands with the head in his hands saying, death and sin, I got it. Victory is proclaimed once and for all. I did it, so you don't have to. Do you see why this day would bring us out of our chairs with joy and excitement? The enemies that I am hopeless to defeat, Jesus has done for me, and all that's left for me to do is respond. All that's left for me to do is is for me to come out of the fetal position. It's for me to wrap my arms around the one that has these enemies in his hand and say, thank you. Thank you. You have defeated them on my behalf. Paul recounts these images. Like in Colossians 2, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I mean, the Bible's full of this kind of language. It's just trash talking at a max. It says, on the, on the cross and through the resurrection, Jesus, he proclaimed, the picture is like a, a military victory. You defeat an army, and rather than ca- killing some of them, you march them on a parade through the city streets. We killed them. We killed their families. We got them. We got their stuff. They are slaves now. This is the picture that Paul uses of what Christ did on Resurrection Sunday. He proclaimed victory over death and sin and the law. John 16 says, Christ says, he's overcome the world. Therefore, the angel's message should be true for us today, right? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, little children. Do not be afraid, little Matt. Those enemies are done. Death will not have the final word for you. Your sin does not have the final word. Your ability to be good or your guilt and shame that you bring into this room because you've been bad this week, it doesn't have the final word. Victory has the final word. The head in his hands has the final word. Paul can taunt it to death. Victory. So, how do we respond? How do you you respond to victory? One would be really clear. To relinquish all your efforts at defeating those things on your own. The scriptures are going to use a word repentance for that. Any of your efforts, be them bad things or good things, to proclaim victory over death and sin law that you erect in your life to somehow merit favor with God, he says, man, you need to lay down arms. Lay down arms. Repent of your own moral efforts to beat these enemies yourself. 
This can go for some of you who come from a staunch religious background and you've erected a checklist that if you keep, you're good. If you don't keep, you're bad. It can also apply to many of you that don't know Christ and you've based your life on being a good person. That in the end, the scales are somehow going to tip in your favor and God's going to look at you and say, you did more good than you did bad. Today, victory is proclaimed. You... Standing before God with your moral efforts is a bit like you showing off a ditch that you dug in the stand while standing beside the Grand Canyon. It amounts to nothing. Victory is proclaimed for you this day. Right now, apart from Christ, God's law requires your death because death is the just consequence for sin in the face of a holy God. However, today, you can repent of your sin and trust in Christ. Jesus today offers you life, and he's really good at taking death and bringing life. Second, reality, repentance. Secondly, faith. That you would fling yourself wildly in the arms of the only one capable of proclaiming victory for you. Sin, and please hear this, is not something you escape from, but it's something that you get rescued from. You don't get better. You get rescued. Faith means coming out of the fetal position, running to the one who has the head in his hands, and wildly embracing your substitute. And sadly, you can either bow voluntarily now before your substitute or compulsory before your judge in the last days. You will stand before him, and you can either come out and lovingly embrace now, or your sin will merit your death. The Goliath will defeat you, death and sin. Today he is already proclaimed victory, and so you can be free from the exhausting battle of what to do with your sin. And run to the one who proclaims victory. And lastly, repentance, faith, and hope. Hope. This is what this chapter is seasoned with, the language of hope. That you cannot out God's ability to forgive. There's no Goliath big enough. He's already got the head in his hand. And as a result, you can say, 1 Peter 1.3 says, Praise be to God, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You can join with us, the church, in looking forward to our resurrection by looking back at his 
This reality transforms all of life and it infuses them with hope. Your day-to-day actions, your choices, your responses, your guilt, your shame, that bad phone call when things are not going well at home, when you get a cancer diagnosis, everything changes. It can be infused with hope. All of this changes as the resurrection is true and your faith is in him. His resurrection will be the first among many of those who dwell in him and we will dwell with him in the new heavens and the new earth where, get this, death, sin, and the law are done forever. The implications, the shrapnel of those realities are done. No more phone calls of cancer diagnosis. No more Facebook wall posts of prayers for little kids that are struggling to hang on for their life. No more gnawing reality of going to bed at 10 o'clock and battling your own bad choices and sin propensities through that day. No more of that. Wipe away every tear from your eye. We can have hope, and that infuses this day with hope. Spurgeon says it this way. Oh, I wish I could say it as Spurgeon would. Let everyone here who has been serving his master bid farewell to everything like a discouraging or despondent thought. The great army of God is not defeated. It never can be. In the long run, it must conquer. And even those parts of the divine strategy of our great commander, which looked like retreat are only portions of his perpetual victory. He is fighting on and will win the battle, even to the end. It is a great consolation to every believer to know that Jesus lives and that he lives in triumph. Church, victory. Victory. So, The only thing you can do with that news is respond. Respond in repentance, in faith, in hope. And all of us this Easter Sunday are invited to respond to the resurrected Christ. It's been a beautiful picture recurring in my mind this week of the elder brother's response to David on the battle lines when he comes walking with the head. He did it. That's awesome. Right? It changes everything. We don't do this a ton around renewal, but this morning I don't want to miss the opportunity to give you space to respond to Christ. For those of you that know Christ, this space can look like praying, can look like repentance, can look like laying down your arms at your own efforts to defeat death and sin, flinging yourself wildly upon Christ. I love that imagery. For others of you, you've heard the Christian deal. You knew this day was supposed to be significant. But for you, significance just meant there Jesus came back. What I want to say this morning is that that has direct implications for you. You will either live and die under the weight of your own death, sin, and law, or victory in Christ. I invite you to repent of your sins and trust in Christ this day. If you're here today, you're like, I don't know how to do that. 
I'm not really sure what that looks like. Does that look like walking down and talking to a pastor? Does that look like praying and raising my hand, standing? I just don't know what that looks like. None of those are, are wrong. What I don't want to do is miss an opportunity to give you space to respond to Christ. Significant days where we can say, there, God saved me. Victory, I ran, I embraced Christ. 